0: in prayer. Lord, we just thank for this day. We thank for this opportunity to open the word and to seek you and to see what you would have us to learn. And we just thank you for all that you've done for us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we're going to be starting the book of Nahum. Now, I have been a Christian for quite a few years. And I think the only minor prophet I have ever heard preached on on a Sunday morning is Jonah. Okay. Now, advanced studies and stuff I've had minor prophets taught, but on a Sunday morning, Nahum seems to be the only, you know, the, Jonah was the only one. So, to help you find Nahum, if you can find Jonah or Micah, you need to go forward into Nahum. If you get to Habakkuk or Zaphaniah, you've gone too far. If you have a wonderful Tom, King James Tom, uh, Thompson James study Bible, it's, very, it's chapter, <laughs> it's 985 if you want to use the pew bibles right in front of you it's 551 um, so we want to look at the verse, the book of Nahum. Um, the first thing I want to say just as I said a little earlier just because they're called minor prophets does not mean they're irrelevant and I think that's the problem that sometimes we you get through these old charts we showed you earlier this morning and we call them a minor prophet and you go well they're not that important and then We have pastors who never talk about the minor prophets on a Sunday morning, so that kind of etches in stone that the minor prophets must not be very important. But we have so much information in there. Micah tells us that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. We have uh, Nahum that's going to describe some very important things. We have the book of Zephaniah, uh, Zephaniah has one of my favorite chapters in it because it talks about Satan going to accuse the high priest, God saying, basically one moment Satan cleans up the high priest and says, now what's your problem? Okay, now that's paraphrasing it a bit, but that's exactly what happens in it. He says, take off those garments, put new garments on them, put a new, new miter on them, and then he turns to Satan, okay, now, now what's your problem? <laughs> you know, that's what God does for us. And yet, if you don't read the Minor Prophets, you'll never read that story, and it's a beautiful story stuck in the middle of a section that people don't read. So we're going to start doing some of the Minor Prophets on Sunday morning, just to, not all of them probably, but we're going to really hit and miss and, and, and pick and choose on them. But I want you to understand how important these, these books are. Uh, so as we go down, as we do on any time when we first start, we do have an introduction to the book. Nahum, the word, his name means comfort or compassion. And his topic on his book really is a curse against Nineveh, but the compassion of God on his people. So he's living up to his name. The date of the book, as far as we understand, was written somewhere between 762 and 712 B.C. It's about 100 years before the destruction of Nineveh now there are scholars out there that say well this book could not have been written before the destruction of Nineveh because of how accurately it describes the destruction of Nineveh so there's a lot of people out there that because they don't believe in the supernatural say well this book cannot have been written before it had to have been written after the same thing that is said about Daniel right? if you do some research on the book of Daniel because he very clearly describes Babylon, and Assyria, and the Medo-Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. They go, well, he obviously could not have been written before all this stuff happens. And there are people who try to put him in Jesus' time when the Roman Empire is in, in control. And the only problem with that is the Septuagint has him in the book, and it was written years before that, that happened. So, in this case, we have proof that his book was ahead of, written ahead of time. So if you hear, hear people say, you know, or look it up and you say, you know, go online or something, well this was written sometime after the fall of Nineveh, that's just because they don't believe in the supernatural. God told Nineveh what was going to happen pretty very precisely as we go through this, and we'll match it up to history when we get to those, those verses. Uh, Nahum is preaching about 150 years after Jonah. And remember, if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah preaches to Nineveh. He wants them destroyed. He sits up on the mountain waiting for God to destroy Nineveh who's repented and God says okay I'm going to give you more time. Now the problem with more time when God gives more time is usually when God gives more time people repent. They, they, turn, they turn their leaf, They They act like they're gonna follow God and very shortly thereafter they fall away and usually go into worse sin than before and that is what Nineveh has done. 150 years later Nahum's going to come to Nineveh and say God's going to destroy you because of your sin and in this case they don't repent and God's going to destroy them another hundred years later. Um, So we just want to bring that up as we look in this. Um, We don't know a whole lot about Nahum. We know that he is from a little town called Elkosh and if you look that up that's a town in northern Assyria which is nowadays in Iraq. In this modern day, there's a tomb of Nahum in that town, and they still recognize him as the prophet that prophesied against Nineveh. From what I was reading, his bones are no longer in the grave. They've been put into a church. Uh, The Catholic church took the bones out of his tomb and put them in the church to protect them, Uh, probably also to make it harder to get to. But... but, uh, His bones are no longer in the tomb. They're in a church in that uh, that town. So we're pretty sure of where he's from. They recognize him. They say, yes, he's from this place. And Nineveh was destroyed in uh, 612 BC, which is, again, 100, 150 years before, uh, after, excuse me, (laughs) after Nahum's predictions of their destruction. So we see he has a very strong message. Um, the purpose of the book is really that God is going to show divine judgment and he's going to relieve Israel because Assyria, if you know your history, Assyria is a, is a nation empire that conquers the northern part of the kingdom of Israel and they mistreated them. And God said because of your mistreatment you are not going to be a kingdom and Babylon then came along. And came, captured the Assyrian Kingdom which from God's point of view was the punishment for the way they treated Israel and Judah was left and remember we've talked about this when Israel divides into two nations under under Rehoboam, uh, the northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. Now the problem with that is sometimes they call the southern kingdom Israel as well they call the northern kingdom Samaria, so when you're reading the Bible, you really have to start taking notes and saying, okay, what are the different names and who are they talking about? Uh, when they t- say Judah, they're talking about the southern kingdom. If they're saying Israel, most of the time it's the northern kingdom, but sometimes it's a whole kingdom, and sometimes it's the southern kingdom, so you have to look at the context of who, who they're talking about. If they say uh, Samaria, Samaria actually is a country of half-breeds, but is sometimes the name for northern The northern kingdom. So, as you read in the Old Testament, it can get very confusing. We've talked about this. Jerusalem has several names: it's Jerusalem, Zion, Mount Moriah, you know, all kinds of different names that you read in there. And you want to know when they say Zion, most of the time they're talking about Jerusalem. And when we hear in today's world, they talk about the Zionists, they're talking about the people who want Jerusalem recognized as the capital of Israel. And usually they're trying to move over all of Israel, but it really talks about Jerusalem. And so we see these things, and I'm just trying to give you history so as we get in these things, you get to know what we're actually talking about. Because so many of us as Christians don't touch the Old Testament a lot. And I understand that. The New Testament is really the important book for us. Jesus comes, he dies, he fulfills, fulfills it. But the why did he come in the first place is established in the Old Testament. The when, how, and what was going to happen all in the Old Testament. So for me when I lead somebody to Christ I will tell them read the New Testament. And probably have them read the New Testament for the first couple years. There's a point in time where if we don't read the Old Testament as Christians we really won't understand the New Testament completely. Why is that? Well because a bunch of Jewish guys wrote the New Testament. When they said words, certain words, they meant certain things. When Paul talks about the Tabernacle He has a very specific thing in mind. He's not just talking about the tent. And if you were in our our class on the Wednesday night when we went through Exodus and Leviticus, and we talked about the tabernacle for about six months, we started showing you all of what Paul was looking at when he was saying, God tabernacles in you. And he talks about the way that that would work out. And, you know, we hear that word and we go, okay, God, God dwells in us, okay, big deal. Well, it's a big deal, but it's a really big deal when you understand all about the tabernacle. And so, at some point as a Christian, we need to grow up enough to be able to say, I've got to get into the Old Testament and start understanding the Old Testament. And the beautiful thing in the Old Testament is you see Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. It's an amazing thing to read the the Old Testament and see Jesus. We have Jacob wrestling with an angel, and we find out, if we look at that, that that was Jesus. He literally wrestled with Jesus. We see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fourth man in the fire, which is Jesus with them in the fire. We see uh, Joshua getting ready to lead the people into the promised land, and he meets the angel of the Lord, and he asks him, whose side are you on? And he says, I'm on nobody's side. Are you on my side? (laughs) Jesus talking to him we see him over and over and over again Jesus as we said this last month with the celebration of the birth of Jesus he did not start that day Jesus has been around forever into all of eternity past he's existed he got his physical body when he came to this world on 3 BC when he was born in the flesh but he had always existed and always will exist into the future. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit existed before they created the world. In the predeterminate council of God before everything was started God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit got together and said okay we're gonna create man, they're gonna fail. Jesus will you die for them? And he said yes. At the moment he said yes, as far as God was concerned the sacrifice had been made. He hadn't actually been sacrificed. He wasn't going to be sacrificed for at least 4,000 years of time And however long before creation that that predeterminate counsel happened, but the moment he said yes, he was the lamb slain. When Adam and Eve sinned, God could forgive their sin because Jesus had already said, I'm going to die. And because he said he would die, the father knew that that he would die. And they were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ right from the beginning. And then all the sacrifices that are made are pictures of Jesus. And again, you know, the book most people skip in the Old Testament when they start reading their Bible, most people can make it through Genesis with no problem. Now Genesis is a pretty easy book. It's pretty exciting. It gives you biographies of three people and the start of everything. They get to Exodus. Exodus is pretty good to the very last part of it. They get to the last third of it and it gets a little boggy. And they get into Leviticus. All those sacrifices, all those rules, usually quit in Leviticus, but if you, you know, really you know, plow your way through Leviticus, you hit Numbers. Numbers is a really exciting book. It starts out with a genealogy <laughs> and numbers. How many people are in the, and people pretty much give up in Numbers most of the time. Yeah, maybe they'll make it through Numbers, maybe. Then they hit Deuteronomy and it's a repeat of Exodus, pretty much. And then if they can really progress, they get Joshua. Joshua's an exciting book. There are battles and, and all these things. Then you get to the last part of it when they're dividing the land and they give you all these cities you've never heard of and, you know, and rivers and all this other stuff. Then you get to Judges. Judges is pretty exciting. You get to the story of Ruth. Ruth is a great story. Yeah. And then they get to 1st and 2nd Samuel. Those are pretty easy. Those are pretty exciting books. They get, it, get to Kings, bogged down a little bit. Then they get to Chronicles. How many of you remember 1st Chronicles? 11 chapters of genealogy. <laughs> now, I love it. <laughs> I love seeing all those names that I recognize and everything. But it's a hard book to read. And we just say, give up, go to the New Testament. <laughs> uh, because then you start getting into all the prophecies and and you know what's hard about the prophecies and we've, we've done this as we're going through Isaiah everybody goes, has this happened or not happened? Well, Isaiah, in Isaiah's time it hasn't happened. We know that it has happened when we get through the book of Nahum. When Nahum speaks it, it hasn't happened yet. But we can look at history and say, wow, look how accurate he prophesied this. So we want to get this into their mind. How much are we going to really study? How are we going to look at this? Do we see Jesus when we read the Bible? In the John it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And we get into 1st John and it tells us that nothing was made without the Word. So Jesus is the Creator. He is the Creator. We're told in the New Testament that all things are held together by Jesus. And when you think about this if you really know science you really understand that it is true that all things are held together by God because if you are into science like I am, you look at the, the very atom of the, of the, that the world is created with, and the atom cannot exist scientifically. You know, it's got protons together in the nucleus. And we all know that if you put, try to put two magnets together on the, on the same side, they blow apart. So how does science say we? They say we have a, something called nuclear force nuclear strong hold on it, they hold it all together. They have no idea what it is, but they go, it holds it together. The electron should be collapsing into the neutron, at uh, the center, and it's held up. The Bible tells us God holds it together. When it comes to the end, after the millennial kingdom, when it's time to destroy it, all God's got to do is say, I'm letting go of the whole universe and the whole universe disintegrates. And he'll do that, and he'll create a new heaven and new earth for us, one pure and free. But, you know, it's amazing when we get into the word of God and we go, God, you have the answers. <laughs> I've always loved that God has the answers for all of those problems out there. And it's, it's amazing when you'll hear on TV, you know, sociologists or psychologists have discovered something. And you're going, well, wow, that's exactly what the Bible says. <laughs> How many millions of dollars did you spend to prove what God already told you? You The bad news is when they come up with something wrong and then they find out another 10 years later that they were wrong. And, uh, you know, like, go back to the Bible. The Bible has the answers. And this is what we look at as we go through this. Are we truly trusting God? This is something I've been on the theme of for probably the last three or four weeks is, do we trust God? We say that God is in charge of all things but yet we will then get into a situation and say, God I just don't know, you know, we'll get like the world, God where are you? You How did this happen? God's testing us to see if we believe Him. Well, we might be getting what we deserve. (laughs) None of us are going to get what they deserve. But you know, the patience of God is amazing. You know, think about how patient God is with you. But Let's go into history. From creation to the flood is 1,560 years I think it was uh, before God destroys man. A millennia and a half that God waits to destroy man for their sin. How patient is God? He waits a long time. He works with Nineveh that we're going to be talking about for 250 years. (laughs) The patience of God. How often has God been patient with you and I, in our life. Probably not for hundreds of years like nations. Uh, but you know, God will go decades with us, with his patience. And he starts out so gentle with his, with his you know, discussions. It may just be a, a Bible verse you need. It may be some pastor that you're being preached at by. Or you could be like me, re- driving around in my cars, listening to pastors, and all of them keep talking about the same topic that God is trying to tell me something about for weeks. <laughs> you know, I, sometimes I think I'm dense that God has to talk to me that much. And I know sometimes I am, <laughs> just like all of us are. And you know, if we don't listen to him, he starts making our life difficult. And eventually, if we really don't listen to him, he may even take us home because of our not listening. And, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I, I have the same problems. God speaks to me, and I kind of ignore him. You know, uh, and, you know, we all do the same thing. We get busy. We get busy in life and don't pay attention to God. But, you know, when we're in, a, in the word and we're in, listening to messages, the easier way to learn is by listening when God speaks. You know, most of us don't like to go out in the woodshed in the back and get spanked. Some of us are hard-headed enough that we have to go up in the woodshed and get behind the woodshed and get spanked by God. But God tries so hard before that to get our attention. He keeps saying, This is what I want. This is what I want. One of the things that has amazed me as I've been going through verse, book by book, is how often God repeats himself in the Bible. God understands that we are dense, thick-headed people. <laughs> he does. You know, in the book of Genesis, he starts out and he says, this is what I want you to do, and he brings judgment. You know, all through time, he keeps repeating the message and repeats the message. If you read the book of Judges, Judges is a whole book where God keeps letting them make, de- make bad decisions. 400 years over a period of you know, that one book where people just keep making bad decisions. God says, okay, you want to keep making bad decisions? I'm going to put you into, into captivity, make you a slave. How many times do we make ourselves slaves to a sin? And God says, are you ready to repent yet? <laughs> are you ready to repent yet? And how many of you have been like me and say, no, God, I'm not quite ready yet? Not yet. <clears throat> well, it tends to heat up a little bit. Uh, okay, God, I think I'm ready. The water's getting a little bit too hot in this pot. I went out. I'm ready to repent. The Bible's full of those stories of people that needed to repent. Nations that need to repent. Nahum is going to be talking about that very topic as he goes on. The breakdown of the, of the book is in the first chapter we see the power of God. His, his power is declared. And then that he would deliver Judah because of his power. In, in chapter 2 we see a description of the siege of Nineveh. And this is the chapter that most people have a big problem with because he describes the siege of Nineveh accurately <laughs> with exactly how it's going to happen and how they're going to fall. and Which is why a lot of people look at it and say well this book just could not have been written beforehand. And yet we know because God prophesies it was. And this is the great thing about the Bible. Do you realize that probably somewhere between a quarter or a third of the Bible is prophecy. And about two-thirds of that has been already fulfilled to let us know that God can tell the future ahead of time. And there's about a third yet to come. Now, if you want to know the fancy word, that's eschatology. It's the study of the end times. And There's a lot of people that they do all their study in the end times. Now, I love the study of the end times, but you know what? I want to know how God's going to help me today. Prophecies that are good, yeah, I'm glad that they're good. God's got prophecies, I'm glad to know those. But you know, I'm more interested in knowing what is happening now. If you want to fill a church or a Bible study, all you got to do is say, We're going to study Revelation. The book of Revelation. When I, when I did that on our afternoon study, our afternoon study jumped to about 12 people. It, it increased very quickly. People want to know about the book of Revelation, and it's a great book. I love to teach the book of Revelation. But you know, in one sense knowing the future is not going to help me live today. It gives me a reason to live today. It gives me a reason to want to follow God. But you know what's really important is how do I get by today? How do I obey God today and what are the blessings? And you know the most important thing we gotta understand that there are always consequences for everything we do good or bad there's a result we are sowing seed i was listening to one of the guys coming in, when coming into church today he was talking about farmers have a choice what are they going to plant you know if they go out and they plant wheat when it comes to harvest time they're not going out there expecting to find tomatoes i hope they're not expecting to find tomatoes but you know we in our christian life so often plant sin and expect righteousness to be the result of that. And God's saying no that's not going to happen. You plant sin you're going to reap the rewards of sin. We need to be looking at what are we sowing in the ground and knowing the consequence. And the fact is we always reap a long time afterwards. It is amazing as my kids are getting older they're all coming back to me and saying, you know what? I didn't think I'd ever learned anything, but now I sit in these Bible studies and I'm able to say things that to me are simple and everybody think are amazing. You know, I'm planting seeds for each one of you and hopefully at some point you'll go, you'll be talking to somebody somewhere else and they're going, and, and you're going to go, with, we, we consider something simple and easy. And they'll go, wow, that's, that's amazing. Why? Because we're studying the word. We're getting to know God's Word. You know, I love it when you guys come into to me and you say, you know, I was reading the Bible and it's the third time through and, and this is what I saw. I love hearing those things because it means that God has touched your life. Not me. I'm not the one making reading the Bible to you every day. I just get to teach the Word and, and, and help you. But you know, it's so much fun. I love to hear when you come back and you say, I was studying and this is what I saw. We need to be able to start sharing that with one another. What does God say to you? Why do we want to do that? Well number one, it shows that you're growing. But Number two, it will encourage those that you share with that God can speak to anybody. I love that God speaks. When I was a teenager there were many times when God would say, God I just don't understand this. Can you show me the answer? The Holy Spirit would give me an answer. Years later, I went to Bible College and I learned how to study. Really learned how to study the Bible, and I found out one very important thing: the Holy Spirit knew what He was talking about. Quite an amazing thing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit, who wrote the book, knows what it means. Now I could prove it, though. And there is a place where we need to be able to say, "Why do I believe?" Not "What do I believe?" Okay. Many times we raise our teenagers and our kids to to what to believe. And then they get into high school or college and these people challenge what they believe with why and give them other reasons to believe something else and we haven't done a lot of favors to them. They need to know and we need to know why. A lot of times when I talk to older Christians, they go, well, this is what I believe because the Bible says so. And that's great, if that's enough, that's great. <laughs> but that's not going to help your your children and your grandchildren when they get to colleges and, and people who don't believe and have reasons for why they don't believe. We need to know why. In first Peter we're told be ready always to give an answer for what you believe. An answer for what you believe. Not this is what I believe. Because we need to be able to give answers. The church got in trouble in the late 1800's, early 1900's because it took what science said evolution is true And because they didn't have an answer for science, they tried to fit evolution into the Bible. And came up with a whole bunch of dumb ideas, rather than saying God's word is true and trying to find out why it's true. Now we're catching up. 150 years of damage to the church, we're catching up and being able to prove God's word is true and science, the so-called science is false. But we need to be able to know Why do you believe? Jesus rose from the dead. Why do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Because the world would come along and tell you why he wasn't really dead in the first place. He just fainted, and they buried him. There's all kinds of proofs in the Bible that that is not true. They drove a spear up into him, and water and blood had come out, which shows that he was already dead. His body's fluid was already separating. We know that he was dead. they, They went to the long tomb. What a dumb idea. You know, everybody that was against Jesus knew exactly what tomb he was born, you know, buried in. So they're like, hey, Jesus is no longer there. They go, there he is, right there. You know, you, you, what did you go to the wrong tomb for? You know, all these different things that people would say, why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? No, why? I can tell you why, because I've studied these things. I know why I believe, and we've taught these different things. Why is the word of God something I can put my faith on? There's reasons for it. Know why you believe because we're living in a generation, most of the people in this room are old enough to you know, live in a generation where people pretty much agreed with the Bible and it was no big deal. If the Bible said it, it's absolutely true. Your children are not, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are not, not living in that kind of world. They're not going to believe it just because the Bible said it. They need to know why is it true and we need to equip ourselves even if we don't need to know why for our own faith we need to know why so that we can share with our relatives our family because heaven and hell are in, in the balance if they don't believe God's word it's in the balance so we need to know why we believe what we believe why do we believe Nahum was written in there because it was, con- because it was part of the canon long before Assyria fell so it wasn't written after the fact, like the world like wants to tell us. So we want to look at these things and say, God, why? Why do I believe? And so that I can share it with my family. I can share it with others, especially young people who aren't in that same place just because the Bible says so. Now for me, many for a long time, that was fine. The Bible said it. I believe it. And I'm still that way. If the Bible says it, I'm going to believe it. But I'm also going to find out why. <laughs> why? Because I'm an analytical person. You all know. I, I've told you many times. If I had been a disciple, I would have been Thomas. <laughs> you know, I saw him die. Now, you guys, I don't know what you were smoking last night when you think you saw Jesus, but uh, I saw him dead. He was buried. Uh, I, I will believe it when I see it. I'm an analytical person. I would be that type of person. Or prove it to me. Prove to me that you saw him. But, you know, I also have that faith. I'm going to believe the word of God first, and then I'm going to go out and find out why, why I believe. The last uh, chapter in the Mayhem is the prophecy on the ruin of Nineveh and how many, and how it all passed away. So we see this, this book is only three chapters long. we we'll are probably be doing it for about six months. <laughs> uh, you, know, you all know how fast I go through things, so. But I just want us to really look at this. Do we really believe God? Do we really trust him? When God says something, are we going to hold on to it? And it comes out as very simple things. Jesus says we're to love one another. Most of us have no problem loving the people that are easy to love. Most of us don't have too much trouble loving the other people in the church who generally agree with us. How about that unsaved relative who just makes life miserable for you because you're, you're, they don't agree with you. And you're going, I just don't want to be around that person. Now how do we as human beings get around and take care of that? Well, I just won't be going anywhere near them. I can love them as long as I don't have to be near them. That's the way the world talks about it. You know, oh, just stay, you stay over on your half of the, half of the world and I'll stay on my half of the world and as long as we never come together I have no problem with you. God's not gonna let that happen with us. He's gonna bring that person into our life and say I want you to love this person. Why? Because he wants his love shown to that person. saw an example of this last night when I went to the baptism of my future granddaughter and one of their family members had a fit because he got there 15 minutes late and missed the baptism. And really made it hard on, on my future son-in-law. Yeah. And I encourage him, this is just your opportunity to love him in spite of all that. Because some people really have the ability to bring out the worst in us, don't they? We all have somebody that can bring out the worst in us. where we just don't feel like a Christian around them. Because they irritate us. Whether it's what they do say, might just be because they showed up. Uh, There's some people that just because somebody shows up, they're irritated at that person. That's a test from God saying, are you going to love this person as I've told you to love? Our flesh says, well, just just stay away. (laughs) I'll go over here, you go over there, and we're okay. And God's saying, that's not what I asked you to do. Jesus told the, told the disciples, you know, when you have a dinner, how many of you invite somebody that's going to invite you back to their house for dinner? Isn't that the way most people do it? Yeah, I'm going to have you over dinner, and, you know, sometime in the future I'll, I'll be at your house. You know, we may not say it, but we know. We know. How many of us would go out to the person who cannot possibly ever invite us to their house and invite them over for dinner? Oh, yeah, they're probably the very person we don't want to be around anyway. <laughs> and God's saying, Who are you loving? Who are you reaching out to? Who do you trust? How about when things get tight financially? It's okay, God, what can I do? Well, I can go out and work five jobs. I can not tithe. All kinds of choices I can do. And God says, what are you going to do? Are you going to trust me? Each one of the tests that we face when we're in a tight spot is God saying, do you trust me? Now it may mean that we go out and get another job when things get tight. It may mean that, that whatever comes along, God will deal with. But you know, are we looking at God and saying, God, what is it you want me to do? And I've said this before, God is not expecting us to be lazy. When I was living on faith, God I, most of my money came in by very hard work. God would throw work my way and say, right, here's a job. Here's a job. Here's a job. Very rarely did I just go to the mailbox and have a check. It did happen once in a while, but most of the time the money came in by hard work. Somebody said, "Can you do this? Can you can you fix this computer? Can you do this? Can you do this?" We need to listen to God and say, "God, what does He want me to do?" But our first step is go to God. God, what do I do? How do I deal with this situation? It is so important for us to do that. We're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we ask you to help us to learn to trust you more. Lord, we look at this and say, God, help me to know what I believe, why I believe it. Help me to get the motivation to study it. Lord, I pray for each person in here. Lord, anybody on the internet listening that doesn't know you and, or in this room that doesn't know you, that they will turn to you and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And for us as Christians, Lord, that you will help us to learn to put more trust in you. That we will put our full trust in you. And as we go through each one of these trials, we will see these trials for what they are, a chance to trust you more. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.